Cyberspace Signal, the app, is synonymous with security. The end-to-end encrypted messaging platform is a go-to for the discerning people who want to keep their communications private. Just remember to turn off that vanishing messages feature that gets a lot of people in the end. Uh, But its CEO is stepping down. Moxie Marlin Spike is out, and WhatsApp's Brian Acton is in. With us today on Cyber to sort all this out is Motherboard staff writer Joseph Cox. The shakeup is the subject of his new piece at Motherboard. WhatsApp co-founder is the new acting CEO of Signal. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. How are you doing today, JC? Hey, I'm all good. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Uh, getting getting back into the swing of things. This is our first live Cyber. Uh, I'm excited to be here on camera again doing this. Uh, and for once, the software didn't fight me today, and I was very happy and pleased with that. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a good start. Hopefully, we can <laughs> keep it going for a couple more weeks, right? So, something will break. Some, know, yeah, something but, always that, burns down. Cool. There's always there's yeah. always a disaster. Okay, so let's talk mm-hmm. about this. Let's talk about Signal. Um, who is Moxie Marlin Spike, and is that his real name? Moxie. Uh, <laughs> I'll just go with uh, his, his background, but Moxie uh, is the founder of signal which used to be two different apps i'm not sure if everybody remembers this but it used to be text secure obviously for sending end-to-end encrypted text messages and red phone as well uh, which was obviously for phone calls i mean i remember when those first came out and i think that they were on android initially um but then moxie eventually brought both of them together for the signal app and at least early on it was basically a one-man operation you know when signal would periodically go down he would be the one who have to restart you know the aws instance or the server or whatever it was um but since then he has led the app into you know a, a much wider spanning uh organization uh and that, that that's both on the on, on the maybe not business side but organizational side as in they have you know dozens of staff now doing various roles and then also on the app front signal has you know dramatically changed as an application itself um under his leadership over over the past few years and yeah he is now um stepping down uh after all that time to be honest not really surprised and i, I don't think there's anything particularly to uh worry about security wise but i i guess we can get into that yeah i actually have another question that just occurred to me um why do you think i feel like signal and i've got his uh his i guess stepping down letter pulled up here next to us but why do you think signal kind of became the app that was synonymous with encrypted messaging why do you think this was the thing that everyone went to yeah i mean moxie has a pretty good reputation when it comes specifically to Cybersecurity. I mean, he, he used to work at Twitter and do stuff there. Uh, but I think primarily it will be because it is not a for-profit business model. You know, it's not 
WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook and now Meta or, or whatever you want to call it. It's not Wicker, which is now owned by Amazon and, uh, you know, also sells their application enterprise version of that to, you know, Customs and Border Protection and other government agencies. And similar, it's not Wire either, which also sells like an enterprise uh, product. It's always been this free um, app that you can just download with some of the ethos and worldview and ideology of, you know, activism uh, met with technology. Essentially, it does sit in a, not unique, but uh, in a space that is slightly different from its more direct competitors, if you want to frame it like that. And I think people, that resonates with people both for um, security reasons, you know, oh, well, there might not be a profit mechanism to start harvesting data or, or, or whatever. Uh, but then also just from an ideological point of view as well, they they know, generally speaking, where Moxie may be coming from and the app as well itself. Uh, user Dcast777 is in here chatting with us, and he made a good point that I think is 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 also part of this. Edward Snowden, right, was a big pro- cool. was a big proponent of Signal, and then when when people really started, I think between him and WikiLeaks, that's when really people started to. I think the general public started to wake up to, um, you know, how bad the surveillance state was getting. And he mm-hmm. at Snowden said a lot of good things about Signal back in the day, right? So yeah, yeah, and the even quotes from Snowden on the Signal website I seem to remember back in the day and that sort of thing. You have to remember that when the Edward Snowden revelations came out in around 2013, most people used PGP when it came to sending somewhat secure emails or messages and that sort of thing. I mean, that's what we had to learn uh, at the time and before as well. And Signal comes along and it removes that pretty massive learning curve and barrier for entry you know even today uh coming up on 10 years after the snowden revelations pgp remains a massive pain in the ass and nobody wants to use it anybody tells you they want to use it they're lying no obviously i'm I'm being facetious but i don't want to use it signal comes along and it is one of the earlier examples of removing that friction uh, and of course, with everybody uh, riled up and rightly concerned about the the Snowden revelations themselves, here eventually is an alternative that you can use to you know protect yourself uh, against some of those surveillance programs uh, if you wish to do so. All right. So, how has this program changed in the last few years? We you know it started out as two different apps. It kind of merged. What else has happened? I mean, when it started, it was very much. Uh, you know, text uh, and then sending files and then video calls, very bare bones uh, feature-wise. More recently now, in in the past few years, you've started to have stickers, which is something, you know, uh, is very popular in the app line, you know, which is often used across Asia and Southeast Asia as well. Um, That always has stickers. Telegram as well also has that, that sort of functionality. Um, you there, there's more stuff recently about being able to move your signal messages over to a new device if you get a new phone or something like that. I always remember um, I've actually had to hold on to older devices because they have a bank of signal messages that I actually require for work for some reason or another. So I've just had to hold on to that rather than transfer them over. That's now a feature that is um, somewhat in signal. Um, so there is a ton of usability stuff which has been introduced. Um, 
as well as just more I, I, I don't want to say gimmicky features because that kind of undermines it, but stuff that would bring it more in line with a, a, with a much more uh, consumer familiar app like WhatsApp or, or, or Line or, or something like that. The sort of features that if you got a family member or a non-technical friend onto Signal, they would be like, oh, I kind of get this UI and I understand these features and I actually want to use this. That's been the real drive uh behind new signal features in the past few years for sure you know and potentially potentially with some criticism there if you're introducing a bunch of new stuff uh into a secure messaging app you know as innocuous as stickers may seem that is an attack surface you know being able to transfer files is also an attack surface you know we haven't seen really uh any research into how those have been exploited or anything like that and the people at signal generally of course know what they're doing but the fact is that is more additional code and additional places where attackers could potentially poke around to try to find something that could be interesting for them all right so who is brian acton the new ceo so brian yes brian acton is now the interim ceo of signal as um as moxie leaves over the coming month and to be clear he's not necessarily you know the the ceo uh for 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 the entire rest of the the company's existence it's more the acting or the interim when as they're looking for one to officially take moxie's place but brian acton is one of the co-founders of whatsapp and i think most crucially uh you know he's of course one of the people who helps turn on end-to-end encryption uh, for WhatsApp, the largest end-to-end encrypted chat platform on the planet, um, came uh, with his partial uh, leadership, you know, and that actually uses the Signal protocol. So there was a relationship there already when it came to uh, Signal and Moxie and Brian Acton. Uh, Brian Acton actually left WhatsApp eventually, um, and it was acquired by Facebook, uh, as everybody knows. And Brian eventually uh, helped for helped formulate the nonprofit Signal Foundation, I think it's called, which is the the, the nonprofit organization that basically maintains, I guess, administrates um, and importantly funds Signal. And he started that with, I think, a fifty million donation or, or, or loan. It, it depends how you read it. Uh, and that is how Signal functions now. It functions at, with a non-profit organization that relies um, on people giving it money. You know, uh, So Brian is very much at the head of that, and now he's at the head of the, the app itself, really. You know? What's your take on him as the CEO? Are you worried at all? Because especially with all these new features coming in, it certainly seems like maybe Signal is becoming more like WhatsApp. Um, another one of our users pointed out, that perhaps we need two versions of Signal, one that is just secure comms and another that's got all the bells and whistles. It's funny because you can actually go and take a fork of Signal right now. I think there is another application. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. It's not particularly popular or anything, but it is basically Signal, which is open source code, right? Basically Signal, and they've made it so you can sign up with a username rather than a phone number, which is actually a very requested feature of Signal users, and I would personally love to have that feature as well. Um, so you could go do that if, if, if you wanted, or you could go make your own Signal or something like that. But to answer your question, I mean, no, not, not really. I'm not worried about the particular... Um, you know, a particular person becoming CEO in the interim or something like that. I think the world, well, people, 
love to you know obviously have a go at whatsapp and they go at facebook and they do uh not great decisions <laughs> a lot of the lot of the time but i just don't think it's as simple as oh my god whatsapp co-founder becomes signal ceo now nsa backdoor and just like ridiculous assertions that people make it's like that, that that's not what's going on he, the, the brian acton cares i think a lot more about privacy clearly because he just put 50 million grand uh, uh 50 million dollars up for it right um i'm not particularly worried about that why i am worried about potentially uh, and i'm sure we'll get into this in a bit is some of the other features that will come in uh to signal or have come into signal and i'm not entirely clear where brian acton's stance is on those specific features it will really come down to signals decisions around specific features in the future which determines what is going to happen with this app for better or for worse but i don't think that means it's one person you know what i mean it was one person with moxie when it first started but the fact of the matter is that signal is a pretty large organization now well let's 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 get into that then a little bit because i i think this is very funny and i think it's very interesting especially given some of what moxie's been posting online in the past past week before he stepped down um, Wired, I think, broke the story last week, which you mentioned in your piece that uh, Signal now has a feature for transferring cryptocurrency between users. Like, how does that work, and, and what's the deal there? Yeah, so Signal announced a beta of this program, I think, last spring, and just in the UK, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. And the idea was that beyond just being able to send end-to-end encrypted messages files, video calls, images, whatever, which is clearly a messaging uh, uh, context, right? They were going to introduce the ability to send, again, end-to-end encrypted and secure and private and whatever, wealth, essentially, through a cryptocurrency called MobileCoin, which is, you know, a, a normal cryptocurrency that is just particularly designed for speed and privacy to be used, obviously, on mobile devices. So that was, yes, going out in the, that beta uh, last spring. And as Andy Greenberg from Wired spotted and reported, that's actually rolled out worldwide now. And if you go into the Signal app right now and you go have a conversation some, with someone, if you press the the plus symbol at the bottom where you would usually attach a file or, or a photo or something like that, and you swipe it to the right or you know you you go to the rest of the menu there will be a payment option and i did not see that until i read the article i was like, oh holy shit okay signal now has payments um which is interesting it's a massive pain in the ass to get mobile coin uh it is not as simple as just saying let's do payments you have to go buy bitcoin then you have to go convert that bitcoin into mobile coin then you have to link your wallet blah 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 so it's not going to radically change everybody's payments overnight but apparently uh i think it was um the the lead of mobile coin told greenberg at wired that it has seen a significant increase in the use of it um this is potentially really problematic basically when we, we we've seen over you know decades now but especially in the past five to ten years that governments around the world, five eyes or otherwise, will use legal mechanisms to target encrypted messages. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in India. Uh, the Australians introduced a very controversial um, new encryption bill to, you know, basically undermine encrypted products. And that's actually the legislation they use to launch the backdoored um, phone company called Anom. That's the legislation they use. The UK has very powerful anti-encryption legislation. And of course, the US, you know, whenever a big case comes up, we may get Apple versus FBI, as we did with the San Bernardino and that sort of thing. 
that's all to say all of those cases focused around not specifically signal but they focused around encryption either just for securing data or you know communications in transit and very generally speaking Encrypted messaging is protected because there is a First Amendment element there, right? It is protected speech. You can't you can't come in and do legislation that's going to stop me speaking, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Money is totally different. <laughs> there is no First Amendment right to sending money to whoever you want all the time, and you can't stop me, the government can't stop me. This is incredibly dicey stuff that signal is walking into you have anti-money laundering laws that you know cryptocurrency and bitcoin exchanges have to abide by you have know your customer kyc laws that you know even malware brokers like nso or if you're even in a crypto phone firm like phantom or stuff they have to know who their customers are legally speaking it just opens up so many more avenues on a federal on a state on an international level for governments to go what the hell? You are letting people transfer this wealth anonymously, securely, instantly, and there's no way that you know who is doing what? You know, not even Bitcoin does that. <laughs> you can go and you can read the ledger. I don't know the the super specific technical details of mobile coin, but the whole point of it being integrated with Signal is that it's private. And that was a very long-winded way of saying that Signal is really playing with fire here. As I think Casey Newton, uh, platform and The Verge pull it, this is potentially really dangerous stuff. And I don't know how I feel about it, I just know it's going to be potentially problematic. WhatsApp, famously, you can transfer money, right? Yes, but as far as I know, there are KYC mechanisms in place, so it's not like WhatsApp's entirely in the dark on who is doing what, right? I know it's an end-to-end encrypted platform, but it's not sending mobile coin to to one another, right? Um, And, of course, you can send money, you know, over Venmo or or something like that. I mean, maybe Venmo is a bad example because their privacy is absolute garbage, but the point being... You can do these transfers of wealth very quickly, and that's not the issue, is that if governments and law enforcement agencies feel they need to, they can go to Venmo and they can find out who did what, you know what I mean? Or uh, another example actually with Venmo is that if you put the word Cuba or something in your transfer, Venmo will stop and be like, "Uh, that sounds like a a sanction thing right there. Could you not do that? Could could you let us know why you're doing that? Uh, Signal or more specifically mobile coin, it says in their terms of use, I looked them up the other day and they said, you can't do money for North Korea, Iran, you know, the usual suspects. And I'm like, how do you know that? I mean, are you looking at IP logs? Are you doing any enforcement? That's going to be, uh, that's an open question at the moment. And we're going, we're going to see what comes out from that, I guess. But for Signal, it's going to be a lot harder to enforce those sorts of policies, presumably at least. Yeah, it's funny. You start, you start messing with the money and that's when the government's perk up. And I've long thought that about the crypto space, um, that once the U.S. federal government kind of wakes up and realizes what kind of power is being messed with here, uh, you know, things might change. But I, I kind of want to use this to segue into something else I thought was very interesting. So three days before um, he publishes his step-down letter, Moxie Marlin Spike on his personal blog uh, on January 7th here, my first impressions of Web3, a famously crypto-connected thing. He kind of starts off saying, uh, you know, I thought of myself as a cryptographer. That's when I hear crypto. That's what I think of. And he kind of talks about his experiments with Web3 and how he found him. Have you read this? Yes. Yeah, I won't go into super detail about it, but he makes it, he basically makes one very good point, which is 
uh, well, Jason Kebler, our editor-in-chief, he pretty eloquently described what Web3 was recently on the previous episode of Cyber. Web1 being, you know, very basic websites. Web2 being we're all social and we're all platforms or whatever. And Web3 being more decentralized and more participatory. You know, that's a very big generalization. That's the promise, right? That we're all going to be decentralized, but we're still going to have the benefits of Web2. Um, what Moxie sort of detailed... And his blog post was that through making his own NFT, he did a little bit of a stunt that when you look at the NFT in a wallet, it looks like a poop emoji. When you look at it on uh, OpenSea or somewhere else, it looks like something different. And OpenSea, which is uh, the most popular NFT marketplace, uh, essentially, actually removed his NFT. It wasn't just removed from OpenSea, it was no longer in his wallet, because it now t- it turned out that the wallet he was using, all it was doing was calling the OpenSea API to retrieve, basically, the, the, the NFT, right? So all of this talk of decentralization and all of this talk of we can do whatever we want and we, don't, we can be independent and that sort of thing, this is a centralized service right here is the OpenSea marketplace. And that's just one example uh, out of what Web3 may become uh, if, as, as Moxie says, they don't sort of change that early on. Yes, it's early days. Web3 is just getting started. But if you don't sort of agree on those fundamental differences now, you could be three, five years down the road and OpenSea is like a Facebook that's inescapable when it comes to NFTs. Right. And then everyone will start talking about Web 4 and how we need to move away from these centralized right, platforms it's, again. It's the same thing again. Just the same cycle <laughs> yes. and over and over again, hopefully with less right. uh, ape uh, JPEGs. But, you know, right. we'll see. Um, yeah, I thought this was all very fascinating. Um, and it was very ex- also extremely interesting to me to, to kind of have the convergence of Signal being able to trade crypto and him kind of experimenting with Web 3 and especially kind of uh, shitting on on nfts in particular I, th- I thought this was a really interesting read really interesting context to all of this um and he also makes the point that like it is still early days and there's a gold rush happening there and you can't stop it um but you know i'll ask people to remember their history the people that got rich during the american gold rush were everyone that was selling shovels to people looking for gold not the actual gold miners themselves and i think kind of overall that's what we're seeing in that space at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But let's jump off of this and let's do a cipher. What do you say? Sure thing. All right. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome back, everyone. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cypher. It's that part of Cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. With me today is Motherboard staff writer Joseph Cox. Hi. All right. So the first one uh, is, is, is really fun and interesting, um, and we've gotten quite a bit of traction out of it. Uh, this is from Audrey Carrollton. Carlton. I'm sorry, Audrey. I just screwed up your name. Um, scientists... Cannabis can prevent COVID-19 infection. Uh, now, you kind of only just glanced at this, right, JC? 
Yes, I mean, I'm just hoping it's true. <laughs> and uh, I don't even want to know the science. Don't ruin it for me. I mean, yes, I have looked into the science as well. And I've actually read multiple uh, different outlets. You know, I went for the New York Post and I read ours and stuff. But I, I understand that it's not as uh, it's not as simple as the headline may suggest from from some of the outlets. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's always the case with this science news. But I think Audrey did a really great job of kind of drilling down into what's actually going on here. The basics are that you know we think of um, like COVID, the COVID nineteen molecule is this thing covered in these spikes, and that's how it infects you. Basically, there's some precursor chemicals inside uh, hemp, inside cannabis plants that had that are an acid base, um, and that they are they're an acid before they become. Um, before they become uh, narcotic, before they get you high. And those three chemicals c- kind of will mold around the spike protein and will uh, prevent, it looks like, you from getting COVID. And again, still extremely early days, um, but it's really interesting stuff. Um, and it's led to a lot of really great memes, uh, a lot of people sharing uh, – you know, uh, I think the the most popular one is like my bong resin in my lungs is protecting me from COVID-19. Uh, that is not what's happening. And in fact, if you smoke it, it will turn it into the chemical uh, that will not work to prevent COVID, apparently. Um, but I think the other big interesting part of this story is that it again points to how cannabis regulation in America is stifling research. Because um, the, the scientist, when Audrey talked to him, very specifically said, you know, um, one of the chemicals, the THCA, is the thing that gets turned into THC that gets you high when it combusts. Um, you can't like there's there's so many restrictions and rules around what we can do on campus up in Oregon, uh, you know, on the federal level doing this research that it's impossible to get enough to legally conduct the research and have it be published in a peer reviewed journal, right? Um, so. And it looks like this would be one of those things where at the end stage, if it actually is turned into a medicine, it would be like an oral application. You would take a pill, probably wouldn't get you high at all. But I I just think it's fascinating all the different things that we continue to see that cannabis can do for us. And I hope that um, our laws change more rapidly than they are even now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's let's jump on to one of the ones, uh, another COVID-related story uh, that you reported out this week. Um, why PS5 restock accounts are now tweeting COVID tests. What is a PS5 restock account, JC? Sure. So, as everybody may know, getting a PlayStation 5 or the new Xbox or, you know, a, a fancy graphics card has been particularly difficult during the pandemic, right? Uh, supply chain issues, all of that, sheer amount of demand. So you may have, as I did when I very luckily got my PS5 eventually after a long time trying, you may follow one of these Twitter accounts uh, that will send out a, pu- a push alert when there's stock at a certain place, right? And, that, and pe- people have seen those. Now, what quite a few of them have started doing over the past week or two is that they have started doing push alerts for COVID tests. Getting a rapid COVID test in the United States at the moment can be really, really difficult. You know, the the finite number, massive queues, whenever they go online, like on Walmart or Amazon or somewhere like that, they get taken. Well, I mean, they run out of stock and inventory near instantaneously, right? There's a very vibrant reseller market on on Etsy and various other websites as well. So now, as mentioned, these Twitter accounts are saying, hey, there's... um, there's stock at Walmart of some of these rapid tests. You can get them while you can. So I just spoke to uh, four or five um, 
restock account administrators and they explained why they were doing it. Um, and they kind of all gave basically the same answer uh, in various different personal ways is that, you know, they have a hell of a lot of followers. They have quite a large community because everybody wants to get a PS5 or something like that. So now they're trying to use it for something good, you know, and that sounds all very nice and noble, but I did notice not the ones who I name in the article, but just some, uh, some other account. It did have a fit, uh, did have an affiliate link on at least one of the COVID test postings. So, you know, potentially they could be making money off this as well. Uh, one of the ones I spoke to did specifically say, look, we're not doing this for money. We're not making any money on it. It's just to get the good message out. Um, but just interesting how the accounts are pivoting to that and include some very high profile accounts as well. There's the Wario 64 restock account, which tweets deals or whatever. I think the Washington Post interviewed them uh, before. And then a couple of days before our article, it wasn't so much on the restock accounts because we're more interested in the bots and that sort of thing. There are these apps you can get that you'll scroll through and it'll basically tell you when Walmart has an item in stock or something like that, which is much more, I would say, consumer friendly right you don't have to follow the right account you download some sort of shopping app and it does it for you but they're doing the same sort of thing for covid tests as well i mean it just shows the failure obviously of the infrastructure of the united states when uh, people have to start using a twitter ps5 restock account to get a covid test but you know if it helps somebody get one then that's something let me let me ask you this because i think um you and i we when we talk about covid19 testing and getting the tests um, I think we hear a lot about what it's like in New York City uh, because that's where a lot of the media class lives, right? Um, you and I, I think, have had slightly atypical and different experiences getting the rapid tests. Uh, can you talk about, like, uh, if you're comfortable sharing? Uh, I know that you were yeah, able I, to get some. I'm, I'm just kind of interested if you'll share that with us. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll keep it vague. I'll just say, obviously, I'm English. Uh, based on my accent and the National Health Service uh, there has provided tests in some capacity to certain workers uh, and a family member was able to get that and not doesn't have an unlimited supply but they have to test every few days pretty regularly uh, for their job so I managed to get quite a few boxes of these NHS rapid tests um, and then I use them you know which is very very fortunate uh and i don't have to go use one of these scalping websites of course it really not even the ideal situation i think the normal situation should be that anybody needs a rapid test should be able to get one but you know that's just not the reality that we live in uh unfortunately you have to find workarounds or help like these covid restock bots you know they're not even ps5 restock bots now they're covid <laughs> test restock bots um it's interesting in south carolina where i live it took it took a little while for for everything to catch up because when I came back, uh, I came back from Texas right after Christmas um, and was pretty worried after after being there, after being in that in that culture uh, uh, where no one is wearing masks. Um, yeah. And I was able to get we were able to get like five at home tests just from a CVS. Um, and I know that there was like at a time when everyone in like all everybody I know in New York and D.C. was struggling to get something. Um, it, but now it has become like, now it's all gone. Um, and then if you go and get uh, a COVID test through DHEC, which is our, uh, which is our local like CDC, um, the turnaround time, like you can get a test pretty easily, but getting the results, you may be over whatever sickness you've got by the time you know what it was. Like, I think one of my friends, right. just, it took them oh, seven days before they, they learned that they were negative. Uh, so it's just been, yeah, it's kind of chaotic basically all over the country. Mm. 
I just wanted to highlight mm. some slightly different experiences. Um, all right, let's do one more. It's another one of the things that's kind of always on your beat. Um, someone scraped massive bank of personal data used by private investigators. Sir, what is going on here? Sure. So briefly, TransUnion, the credit reporting agency, one of them in the United States, they have a database called TLO. And that has stuff like social security numbers, dates of birth, um, name, physical addresses, phone numbers of you or the person being searched, phone numbers of their relatives, like sort of like a LexisNexis sort of thing. Um, but they specifically market it to private investigators and law enforcement as well can buy access and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, before this article, a few days before, we wrote another one where I found some a criminal on Telegram advertising access to the TLL database. You know, you give them 50 bucks or whatever. They didn't say the price, but this is what I learned later on. You give them some uh, bit of money and they'll do a social security number lookup for you on TLO. And then you can use that for fraud, identity theft, whatever. This story that you brought up, uh, a researcher came forward and they found a website where somebody was scraping TLO uh, in bulk. So they would basically use a script to enter a name and it would scrape TLO, it would get the PDF back, and then it would save it. The thing was... And I'm not going to be too specific because we deliberately obfuscated a little bit so we wouldn't expose the personal data of anybody. I think the website's down now anyway. But basically, there were thousands and thousands of PDFs of people searches that this scraper had performed and archived on this website. It had a password on it, but it was very easy to find the password, and that's what the researcher um, discovered. So it just shows that you may have a database like TLO or LexisNexis or something like that, which is only for apparently authorized users, the PIs, the cops, or you know the risk management people, whatever. It goes to show they can't really control what happens to that data afterwards. You know, it could be taken, it could be resold, or in this case, it can just be thrown up on a poorly protected website for potentially anybody to come across and look through. And Senator Wyden, uh, who I think is mentioned very briefly at the bottom of the article, is trying to get a government body which handles this sort of thing to actually stop the sale of this data, which would be huge, uh, especially in the private investigator world. This is basically what they rely on. Um, I'm sure they would have concerns about that, the PI industry, uh, but there is certainly a lot of data going on here that a lot of people have access to. Can I ask you a big picture question as kind of our outro? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked about Signal, we've talked about this hack, you cover this stuff extensively, you're, you're deep in this space. Do you think it feels like, and I, it feels like every, almost every day, there's some new hack, some new data breach, some new massive security problem that you've uncovered and you're reporting on. Do you think things are getting better at all? Are people learning lessons or, or is it just kind of a free-for-all out there right now? It's very complicated. I think that improvements are being made. I think it was, what did it say, Google recently said it was going to enforce 2FA on most Gmail accounts, all Gmail accounts. I can't remember exactly, but there was definitely like a big announcement. And that will cut out like 95% even more of the hacks of email accounts. That is a significant uh, upgrade. You can't really exaggerate the, the, the significance and the potential positive impact that was going to have. On the flip side, um, 
you know, you have people putting their own data in exposed S3 buckets that anybody can see, and that happens every single week. Some Somebody's put data that's been exposed to the internet. So I would say it's complicated. Humans are always going to be human. Businesses are always going to be businesses cutting corners. But there are people who are making substantial changes. It's just that cybersecurity is such a wide field with different levels of risk, of issues, and victims, potentially, you know, your personal email account or if you're being attacked by a state or something like that. Um, I, but but I, I'm generally positive. I think that things can get better and will get better, but it will be incremental in various different directions. That's, that's all I would say, yeah. I think that's a, that's a fun way to start the new year. Um, things can get better, but it will be incremental. Uh, I think that's the energy that we can all bring into 2022. <laughs> that, that's something that we, we can we can cling to that for another year. That's fine. Motherboard, uh, Motherboard's own Joseph Cox, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through all of this. I'm going to play our lovely outro music. All right. Thank you, everyone, for jumping in. And we've got some great questions in the chat, a lot of good discussion. Uh, if you missed the show live, you can catch it uh, in just a few hours. It'll be uploaded in its podcast form, uh, Sons Our Lovely Faces. Um, you can find that anywhere lovely pods are casted. We will be back next week with another uh, lovely live recording of Cyber, probably on Wednesday this time. Wednesday at 4 p.m., I think, is going to be... Uh, the slot that this is always going to air um, if I'm good and I know what I'm doing. And I do. So we will see you all then. Alright, we're out. Cool. Thank you, that was great. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.